they currently have about 450 gigawatts of solar, yeah. which is massive already, right? Yeah. And, but China's massive period, but right. now you're tripling it. Well, hello, pirates. Welcome back. I'm your host, Lucas Pinko, as normal. And today we have a very special guest, Josh Bodie, partner at DemandSide Analytics. Hello, Josh. Hey, how's it going? Hi, Josh. It's great to have you. And together we today we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, Josh, it's great to have you on. I've known you for a long time. We've actually done some work together, which was very, very cool. Um, so I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about DemandSide Analytics and, and what you guys do there. Yeah, so we're basically a firm that focuses pretty much on doing data analysis of, uh, you know, very detailed data for uh, hourly data, oftentimes, or sub-hourly data for things like substations, feeders, AMI meters, system load, uh, and use data. So in essence, as you, you know, that the whole electric, electric system is basically planned around the peak overall and how those factors contribute. So we do a, a ton of detail analysis in Essentially, it's like since you have a uh, collection of data going on at a very current basis, you know, it's pretty critical in terms of timing of when people use that energy. So what do you, who do you consult for? Like you work with utilities? We work with utilities. We work with regulators. We work with ISOs. Uh, occasionally, we do a bit of work for some of the, run a whole bunch of pilots and new technology as well. Uh, it really depends on the state. Like if we go to a state, we pick one set of folks and that's it. Right. And you know, the whole process is you kind of have like this trifecta of uh, decisions that have to be made. There's the utility that wants to run it. There's the regulator, but they often require somebody to separate to run a whole bunch of analysis to make sure that it's, it's valid, you know, as a whole. But, but I think that's one of the cool parts of the job I've had is like, I've been very lucky, right? As I got lots of exposure to data from all over the country. I've probably worked with AMI data from 20 plus utilities millions of meters, you know, and, and really have, if you show me like patterns, I just see it because I've worked with it so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's super cool. So a lot of our listeners are, um, you know, up and coming in their careers. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your career progression. Like, how did you get here? What, what path did you get? Well, I call it part luck, right? That's a given part, <laughs> uh, part essentially like work at that. Uh, yeah. But also kind of like having a good team around you, right? So I actually was in grad school at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley, and I, I was not focused on energy. I was really focused on, I want to build skills, I want to deal with data analysis. This is before data science was a thing, right? And in essence, and research methods, risk analysis, all that kind of stuff. And my, my philosophy is get the skill set, you can figure out how to use it, you can apply it really widely. Um, so that's advice number one, just focus on your skill set first and foremost, because you can learn an industry pretty easily once you get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happened to sit in a class uh, with somebody named Andrew McAllister. He happens to be the chairperson for the California Energy Commission right now. <laughs> and it was a research design class. I remember that very quickly. And he brought up like uh, a topic, you know, which was basically gigantic energy efficiency proceeding, which is the biggest one of the type uh, around that time in California. And I, we did a whole bunch of work on that. And then afterwards, I literally just picked up the phone called up the, uh, one of the PUC commissioners that was handling that and said, hey, I'll work for you for free for the next six months if you'll take me. Send in my <laughs> resume. And they said yes. And oh, that's yeah. how I got started in the energy industry. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, part of, so that's lesson number two, right? 
don't be scared to, to take a shot at it. <laughs> I literally just took a shot at it and it started doing work for, for her. It was Susan Kennedy at that point in time at the California uh, Public Utilities Commission and just got my head really deep into energy at that stage. I always was fascinated by it, but I wasn't sure how to, uh, where to make the entry overall. And I think like bumping into Andrew kind of really helped me sort that out. He doesn't know that though. well he might now (laughs) Uh, so that's great it's kind of like a make your own internship right like yeah Uh, yeah and i think that that's something that you like i always tell people never shut a door on yourself there's enough people who want to shut a door on you Mm. so i personally make it my goal not to close the door on myself you know it's like i'm not going to say i can't do this um, or this opportunity is something that's not going to be available. I'll see if the if I can crack the door open, you know, or if there's something there. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So let's get into some meat, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. So you've talked about the need to change system planning. I'm assuming you're meaning the electrical system, right? So what? Yeah. What is? How critically important is that? I mean, it's incredibly important. It's like, you know, as soon as you try to integrate the amount of renewals that we're looking at having this massive transformation in your system, all the infrastructure needs to change to go along with it. But not only that, but the way you plan for things needs to change. And and to me, it's instructive to kind of see it move slowly, right? Because uh, a lot of the planning that we do is often what I call like fake probabilistic because they use terms like, you know, one in 10, one in two uh, probabilities, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of scenario planning behind it. And mm-hmm. when you look at something like what happened in Texas or what happened in California last year, right, where you had rolling blackouts, Texas was way worse. Um, a lot of it kind of goes back to having planning standards that aren't regularly updated and using methods that have been around for, you know, mm-hmm. years and years mm-hmm. that really need to be updated. You know, so, yeah, yeah. to give you an example, I mean, it's like most of the planning for the grid is done around here's your one and two or normal peak demand, normal year peak demand, and plus a buffer, right? And in California, the buffer has been 15%. Nobody has updated that buffer for probably like 30 plus years. And, And realistically, that buffer itself doesn't factor in the fact that your grid has gone through dramatic changes such as you no longer have a whole, whole bunch of imports coming from like the Northwest into California because the Northwest is not winter peaking as much. They're very summer peaking. They tipped them over. They're kind of halfway uh, summer winter peaking. So the imports are reduced, right? You have obviously a lot more wind and solar that you need to factor into your planning and weather's changing. So until you start factoring all those issues, you know, into the planning process and updating your methods and factoring in that uncertainty, it becomes much more, uh, you're going to be off in your planning processes. So I personally just think like plant changing the way we do planning and really kind of getting down and be looking underneath the hood and seeing are all these model assumptions that you have built up, do they really work? That makes a big yeah. difference. But then you have to look forward and say, well, how do I need to adopt the model given that we're looking at a, a transformational change in the electric grid? Yeah. Okay, so I guess the follow-up question is, what would you do, right? Um, I mean, we yep. had Gavin Dillingham on from the Houston Advanced Research Center, and he, he was suggesting that uh, we have to look at the, the details in these climate models they're doing in the future because yep. they give you information about, like, the spread of weather uh, events, mm-hmm. right, and the statistical spread. 
and we need yep. to take these kind of microclimate predictions, I guess he called them, into into our planning. Like, like I thought that was a great idea. Do, do you? What do you think? I mean, I mean, I think that matters some. To me, the biggest issue is the the correlated risk, right? So, mm-hmm. and it's really hard when you have these extreme conditions. You don't see them very often enough to be able to define the, the the shape of the tail as well. And you don't see them often enough to be able to define really here's the correlated risk. So if you look at Texas, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I think people anticipated having a cold weather snap like what they had in the past. It's not what they planned for, right? What they didn't anticipate is having, what was it, like 40,000 megawatts of uh, gas and uh, coal that was out mm-hmm. or having everything freeze up overall. Right. And, and right. they just hadn't planned for that. And, and obviously that risk is easier to see in hindsight than enforce going forward. And to some extent, you're not going to play, pay for, you know, reliability. That, that's perfect. But that was really extreme. That was kind of like a situation where they had the foresight because that all that that happened in 2011, I believe it was. And they had done the studies and said, Hey, you must go ahead and deal with the fact that your gas wells are going to freeze up and weatherize all these pl- power plants and, and strengthen right. your gas supply. Right. And people just ignored that study. Mm-hmm. And all it took was regulatory will to go ahead and enact that and make sure that you put those policies in place. So to me, like Texas, is, it, 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 it was actually a very foreseeable issue. But it also raises the opposite side, right? It's like a lot of people think like, well, people are making the argument, you have to build more you have to build more peakers, more more resources in Texas. And that's actually a very bad argument because <laughs> we had a lot of capacity built, but it was inoperable capacity. Right. Well, right. If it's not going to be there when you need it, then what's the point? Exactly. Right. And, and, and it's interesting that, you know, gas uh, power plants are treated as uh, solid capacity coal as well. And that was a situation where they failed to show up in mass. Um, you know, not because of the power plant itself, but it was really the planning around the gas supply and the, and the cold yeah. weather spell. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could get back to this concept of correlated risk. I mean, can you give another example of, of like what a correlated risk might be in New York or in California? Um, I'll go to California because we just had the, the outages over the summer, right? Yeah. A correlated risk is we had fires and really hot weather. So I, I remember that weekend, really, I'm in the Bay Area, yeah. right? And the fires are far away, but all of the cloud kind of comes in. And I don't know if you remember seeing those pictures of Orange Day, where you mm-hmm. literally didn't have the sun come out. Um, mm-hmm. But that weekend when they had those outages, it was a type of heat that we don't typically experience here. You couldn't find any cooling. It was kind of a little bit of a haze. It was hot. Mm-hmm. It was really hot, but some of it was tied to the fires themselves. You know, so realistically and and obviously if you have fires it makes it harder to operate your transmission system yeah. and it makes it also harder to predict and COVID <laughs> on top of that right <laughs> which yeah. makes it very hard to predict what will be your demand uh for the next few days or the weekend overall so one of the big issues that happened with the california blackouts is the fact that literally the the uh Cal ISO said, hey, here's, we have about 4,000 megawatts of generation. Go home. We don't need you uh, going forward because we have enough supply. So they had the bids. They had the install capacity, but they basically released and didn't have the commitments from them. And, and they allowed them to bid elsewhere and export elsewhere, uh, in part because their, the forecasts were off. You know? hmm. but, but if I'm sitting in their, in their position and I, I have a summer with COVID, 
is mm -hmm. somewhere with, uh, you know, basically tons of fire, fire risk going on. I'm sitting here and saying, I think I need to make those confidence bands in my forecast a little bit fatter. Like yeah. it, it's a judgmental call, but yeah. realistically, you know, it's, it's like, you know, that you're not planning for normal conditions. Yeah. Hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit too about flexible load, like can flexible load play a role here and, and, you know, how should we be pushing for that? And, you know, yeah. I, I asked Neil too about the, um, the DER, you know, uh, tariff. Well, at, at FERC. So, yeah, can you, what can you tell us? I, I would classify flexible load into two buckets, right? Because you kind of have like the day to day flexibility in response to things like prices or conditions that you call. But I think there's a category that often gets missed, which is going to be like possibly having like emergency only flexible load. And the reason I raised this is the fact that um, Art Rosenfeld. Uh, way back when he had the, uh, tried to push a process that said, hey, everybody as a condition of service, you have to have your smart thermostat or in that case it was a, a programmable thermostat in place, but give us the ability if there is an emergency. You're not going to use this for planning, but there is an emergency to set back the thermostat four degrees. And you have to think about it. You know, it's like if you look at the, this actually applies to Texas as well, right? Uh, but if you look at the amount of demand that goes on the system, it has to do with heating or cooling. And just having that ability to sit there and say, okay, we're going to change the temperature for, by four degrees across the board can avoid a lot of blackouts. The issue with flexible loads is this, it's opt-in. It's voluntary. Mm -hmm. You know, people need to roll in and you don't have a wipe. It's not a default. So the amount of flexibility you have, it responds quickly. I mean, like there's been studies for years that show your response can happen in like, you know, seconds less than a minute, you see load just drop. Have you ever seen this happening? You say, when I drop the load mm -hmm. in control, thermostats, uh, you know, water heaters, batteries, EVs, you hit that button, the load just drops. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, uh, but in practice, you have to have enough bulk for it to matter. So to some extent, I wanna think about flexible load as having two categories. You know, here's the one that you use every day to provide the services. Here's the subset that is effectively, I would push to say, call it like a, a, a default, uh, a, you know, a condition of service. So that rather than having outages and you need to hit an emergency, you basically just have a few degrees of additional heat. Now, now it doesn't, you know, so four degrees setback in terms of the temperature. Um, and that drops, you know, probably more than uh, roughly about 60% of your load is, is associated with the weather when it comes to peak demand. You know, hmm. so like realistically, that shift can ha have a pretty massive impact. It's yeah. not going to solve things like Texas. Because, I mean, that was like, that was completely well, at, a, at a different scale. Well, right. I mean, that's a problem we're going to look at in the Northeast here. That yep. if we start being winter peaking, I mean, you can't, I, I don't know if you can do well, the same thing with, with cold that you can with heat, right? In, in my view, it's like, you know, like having like thermostats in particular should be free. Like smart thermostats. And the reason why is they, give you energy efficiency. They give you the ability to control in the summer and the ability to control in the winter if you have electric heating. And, and, and realistically, they more than pay for themselves. Yeah. Uh, it, as long as you have the ability to say, all right, we're going to have some amount of control if there we reach a situation that's extreme. Now, you don't want to do this every single day, but you want to have the capability built in. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I love about EVs too. If we, if we get a lot of EVs coming out of the grid and we have a huge load, they're already, you know, flexible by default, right? Have you checked? There's, uh, 
API, and this is not a plug, called Smart Cars. Have you checked it out? No. Well, I know there's a couple of them, actually. Yeah, there's, there's more than a few. Of them. That's the one I use, yeah. but it's, it's fascinating because you can actually sit there and they've hooked up all the manu vehicle manufacturers. And rather than trying to manage the charger, you're literally trying to manage the car. And, you're, and you can manage that. It's really scheduled charging. And you kind of have to have that even for the ev everyday grid because, you, you know, if me, you, and neighbor next door has an EV, you can't have them all come on at the same time. Right. You essentially need to schedule them out little by little. Right. Well, that's a good idea. And I know utilities are looking for help on, on how to help manage that situation, right? That exact situation you just brought up. Right? Yep. There's a, there's a lot of studies going on about it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I bet they are. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, I've done one myself, so I know exactly what they're after. And um, from what I found, the results were very good. But those were early adopters, right? Um, that, yes. That's one thing I worry about is, you know, you're going to get early adopters and they're going to be, they're going to give you good results on whatever you study. And then when it hits mass adoption and all that's going to go away. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's technology, technology works, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really a question of, can you give people what they want, which is my car charged, while managing when it happens, right? So if you look at it from a standpoint, that's a constraint, you have to make sure the customer has what they need. And then you have some flexibility around some of the management, um, then you can probably do it. Um, I think the biggest challenge, which is completely understated, is less the ability to control in use devices, but really the ability to get customers to enroll. Right. You know, and, and, and if it really makes a big difference if it's a default versus an opt-in approach. Uh, and it makes a huge difference in terms of you know incentives and all the, all those components because they need to be compensated for essentially uh, you know giving you some of their control. Right. So if if people leave their office at five and they get home at at six and they plug in right away, 6 p.m. is really not a good time to be dropping a lot of load on the grid, right? So nope. something that- Probably would, the worst time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, something that would just move that. And we've seen that most people don't drive their EV very far every day, right? So- I mean, I have my EV uh, set up to essentially just start charging at 10 p.m. Right? So right. If, I if I plug it at six, it starts char charging at 10. And, but it's not the default. You, you have to go in and say, that's my default setting that I want to do it. So if you make that the default setting, then it becomes much more uh, manageable. Well, you know, and you can have deals with people say, you know, I'm only going to manage some of the charging if you get past 50, if you're above 50% charge capacity. Right. You know? Right. Or, you know, they're talking about some kind of signal from the utility to say, okay, now you can charge, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the API. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, what about winter peak though? I mean, Winter peak might be in the morning when it's cold. If it's if it's it, it, yeah, that's precisely it. Uh, I mean, that's when it happens. There's lots of places that peak in the in the in the winter. I mean, surprisingly, a lot of places in the south have a lot of electric heating, mm -hmm. and they peak. Uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, they all have tons of electric heating. Texas too, huh. but but essentially they have pretty big winter peaks already. And the Northwest is the other area that has relatively large winter peaks. Um, you know, I mean, there's two things. One of them is like heat pumps. If you put them in, they're about a third of the energy use in terms of consumption. And you have to be careful there because they uh, will draw on the, uh, and the secondary source of power if it gets way too cold. But the new, newest generation can withstand pretty cold weather before they really draw on that. So a lot of the issue with really big winter peaks has to do 
with having basically inefficient electric heating rather than efficient electric heating. Um, you know, but I think in the in the scheme of things, it needs to be a balance, right? You can't go to 100% electrification and heating all at once, and right. you're going to have to do it over time and evolve your grid to accommodate it. But if you just think about it from a customer standpoint, if I have a more use of the grid winter and summer, what does that do? It lowers my rate because right now we're paying for all the infrastructure, even though we have a extreme peak in the summer only. So your utilization goes up by having that electrification, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's wow, heat pumps. And you, at least your transmission distribution portion rate would go down, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, it's a, I think it's a challenge. It's a solvable challenge, but you, you know, you know, this very better than most people, but that there's a lot of details in the implementation and mm-hmm. you can walk in with one set of assumptions, you test it, they need to adjust. And I think too often we make the grand plan and don't go through the homework of testing the assumptions and adjusting and updating the plan afterwards. Yeah. And, and one of the details is those savings only appear if you're off, if all that load is off peak, right? That drives up your utilization. You don't, you can't raise yep. your peak. Yeah. But you bring yeah. this back to the flexible load, right? Well, it, but it, yeah, and I think that makes a difference. And, but also you have situations where you have, you know, utilities that are almost dual peaking, you know, so there, it's not like they, as long as your new winter peak is not higher than your summer peak, you're probably okay. Cause yeah. you don't have to plan for a bigger grid. Right. Um, you know, you just, but you just need to make sure in that case, you either don't have gas supply or you have secure gas supply. And you cut your maintenance period. <laughs> you know, they do yes. maintenance in the winter now. They won't be able to do that just yep. in the shoulder months, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Well, okay. One more thing. You said inefficient electric heating. So what's efficient electric heating? Is it heat pump, which is a heat pump or what? Yeah. I mean, it, it's heat. I mean, you, you know, it's very clear. It's like the first thing you want to do is make your home efficient. That's number one. And if you get down to like looking at heat pumps, they use about a third of the electric power as uh, electric resistance heating. If you look at electric resistant heat, right. those are big, big loads on the home and on, on, on the system. You know, if you look at heat pump loads, they're literally about a third. You know, so it's a lot less strain on the grid. You're still getting the same output, which is the heat, but just a lot less strain. Wow. Okay. Okay, cool. I mean, mm-hmm. I love, you know, I love to geek out. We could geek out forever on this, but we, <laughs> we got yeah, yeah, we need to put up some plots for people to look at, right? <laughs> yeah, because like, I, I can see like you're visualizing it, so am I. But I don't know if everybody can visualize what the what what uh electric heating shape looks like or uh AC load yeah. shape. Well, we should have a uh you know workshop or something. Here's how to fix the the grid, according to Josh and Lucas. <laughs> to be revised about two months later. <laughs> yeah, every every two months. Yeah, really. Yeah. All right. So you're gonna stick around for some articles, right? Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, articles. We only have two articles this week. Uh, I wanted to keep it kind of short and sweet, um, but just on the big ones, again, there's a ton of interesting news going on, especially the Texas thing is still going, but I don't want to bring that up again. So um, I saw some really big items I wanted to talk about. The first one here from Green Tech Media. This might be the last Green Tech Media article you're ever going to see on the on the show. Um, sad to say, Green Tech Media has been... Uh, Sunset by Wood McKenzie. They kept the um, wow. research arm, but no more green tech media. So 
I did not realize that. That's a big yeah. one. So we'll say a prayer for GTM and, uh, you know, we got to send them off the right way. So they have this incredible article, which I love. New plans reveal how China's grid is prepping for uh, zero net zero carbon. This is great news to me. This is from March 3rd from John Parnell. Uh, terawatts of renewables in the world's largest EV charging network uh, is going to happen in China. And they want to peak carbon emissions by 2030. This is great news. I don't know if you've ever seen projections of global carbon output. They will be driven by China and India. They are huge. They have so many people. I, I actually love the fact that it's not a U.S. article and there's just a China article. Right. Because like, we focus so much on what we do here. And like you said, they have billions of people, you know, and they're all yeah. like have the electricity is growing very quickly because they're uh, moving up the curve of um, essentially kind of shifting from, you know, to more and more advanced economy. Right. And with it, oftentimes, electricity. I was looking at um, some data on this, and basically, like the, the energy use per capita, so energy use per capita has more than doubled over the past ten years in China. Yep. And they are growing, and they're, you know, they're moving from a, a poor agrarian economy to a modern, you know, sophisticated middle class economy with with a quality of life like we enjoy, right? And mm -hmm. so. It became like a geopolitical issue. Like they're still increasing carbon output. We're decreasing carbon output, us mm -hmm. in, in Europe, in the advanced economies. So it becomes a geopolitical issue of, you know, pressuring them to slow down with the, the carbon increase to get them to turn around. So this is fantastic news to me. This is going to take a huge chunk out of global carbon output into the atmosphere. Uh, and I can't get enough of this. I think they set a target of 2060 to be net zero, which leaves a little bit desired, but the, you know, they're still increasing. So mm -hmm. they've got a long ways to go. Well, I, th I think their point of just still increasing is a big deal because here, if we shift to say renewables, that basically means you're displacing other jobs in fossil fuel industry. Here they have to build out the grid. They have to build out their capacity. So they're basically at that point where uh, if they start shifting and building out the capacity uh, and make it renewable at this point or more sustainable, then they they don't necessarily have to displace as much of the existing uh, use. They're essentially building for the next set of uh, folks that are coming on board and trying to meet those needs. So I think they're in a very different spot because they're going to be building something no matter what. Yeah. And it's much better they're building something that's green and sustainable than not. Well, right. I mean, it's easier to fix it now before you build it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're saying here from 2020 to 2030, they're going to increase growth in electricity 64%, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to require car makers to have 40% EVs by 2030. So, they, you know, that's kind of what I just said. Like, you should build it. If you're building it, just build it right from the beginning. So I thought this was great news. I hadn't seen a lot of good news come out of China. I don't know if you guys know about the pollution problems there and that. Oh, well, it's well if you look, if you look at, I mean, up up higher in the article, they're pointing out like they had like a, they currently have about 450 gigawatts of solar, yeah. which is massive already, right? Yeah. And but China's massive period, but right. now you're tripling it. I mean, that's the goal is to triple it in the near term. So it, it's a it's a big uh, you know shift that they're expecting to happen. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of solar panels. That is a lot. <laughs> Yep. As far as, you know, making progress on climate, I think that's 
even if we went to zero, you're still talking, you know, not even making a dent in, in what you're talking about. If they were to go full coil and natural yeah. gas, I mean, it wouldn't even matter what we did, you know? Yep. Yeah. We'll take whatever we can get. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I wanted to talk about this one next. This is from InsideClimateNews.org. Uh, mm -hmm. A furious industry backlash greets moves by California cities to ban natural gas and new construction. This, I thought this has been an interesting development over the past couple of years that cities, uh, very forward-leaning cities, have tried to ban new natural gas installations, which I thought is interesting. I mean, it's definitely something you want to do if, if you want to stop fossil fuel expansion right now. Mm -hmm. um, but what's happening is the industry is pushing back and they're trying to go directly to the states and ban bans, <laughs> which sounds kind of crazy. But so here's the states where they've actually pushed through uh, bans on banning natural gas. So Arizona, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Tennessee. I mean, these aren't too shocking. These are natural gas kind of industry states, right? Do, but do there you are think, all these other. Do you, think be, do you think they're going to be decarbonizing their uh, gas system in the near term? I don't think those are states that really matter. They're not going to be leading that. Well, right. But some of these other ones with proposed bans, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Pencil, makes sense. Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Florida burns a lot of natural gas, right? And Texas. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't see California in here. So I don't know, you make a good point. I mean, is this really gonna have an impact? Should we be concerned about this? Yeah, but I think this is points to the whole issue of, um, you know, it's like you're, whenever you go after an entrenched position where somebody is making money off something, you know, they're gonna wanna cling to their, their, their source of money in that case, right? right. And, and again, it's, it's a shift, you know, there's lots of HVAC contractors who deal with gas. There's people who deal with like, mass gas sales, there are people who deal with stove sales. Um, you know, but some of it's like a political reaction, like you said earlier. Uh, but some of it is just people, you know, banding together and saying, hey, you know, we don't want to see change. Um, and it's just a question of what's going to be the pace of change to get there. Because if you're going to deal with the decarbonization, at some point you have to tackle natural gas. And the question is how to do it in a, in a way that um, doesn't disrupt our everyday lives. You know, and it kind of flows in naturally over time. Right. I mean, I still count on natural gas to heat my home. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we well, do it, have to. <laughs> we can't just drop it. Right? And it depends where you're at, too. You know, because, I mean, it's like you, if you're in the Northeast, there's a lot of like propane and oil, oil heating and gas is actually going to be better than propane or oil, at least from a from emission standpoint. Uh, you know, but but it's a question where it is in the pecking order in terms of issues that we need to tackle. Yeah. But I, I do think like the whole notion of don't ban existing gas, you know, a lot of these are partial bans. They're necessarily banning it, everything. Some of them are just for commercial or for like multifamily buildings. Uh, but some of that makes sense because that's the way you can enact that shift little by little because you're not really affecting people who've already had the gas in place. You're not penalizing them. You're really saying going forward, we need to change our planning. Yeah. You know, uh, but, but it is the question of what is the pace and getting people used to that little by little and saying, yeah, you can have heat, you can have cooking, you can have everything that you want without necessarily having gas run to your home. Because at the end of the day, I don't care about whether it's gas or whether it's electric, except for maybe grilling. Uh, but at the end of you know, the the what you care about is am I getting heat to my house? Am I able to cook my food? Am I going to get hot water? Yeah. 
Well, but I just think, you know, it's in vogue right now for everybody to have a net zero by this date plan. You know, here's mm -hmm. one in Massachusetts by 2050. But I don't think people understand that if you install a natural gas furnace right now, it's yep. going to have a useful life to 2050. So mm -hmm. and at some point, these plans have to reconcile with, you know, useful life of existing and new assets. And we're going to have to say, look, if you really want to do net zero by 2050, Massachusetts, you have to stop installing new gas burning equipment. That's what it is. Yep. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, so you kind of have to see that shift happen. Um, I think what jumps out about this one is that it's so overt. It's saying we're going to basically not have, not have gas in there because you could set a uh, different target and say it's going to be an energy target and or based one on CO2, for example, or fuel emissions. And you have to have a you know fuel budget essentially. You have, if you build new construction, you must be within this fuel budget, which essentially pushes people towards uh, decarbonizing. You know, but this one's, these these steps are really overt. They're really saying, hey, you know, like we are actually specifically going to begin gas, uh, gas installation, installation of gas in uses. Yeah. Yeah. It's saying, they're saying here, Colorado and New York, two other states that are thinking about it, but they're trying to work it into policy. I mean, I mean, this is an issue too, because we have large, expensive natural gas distribution and transmission. Mm -hmm. and those assets are going to end up stranded. I mean, what are you going to do with all that? So, yeah, that's also a messy situation. That's something you have to plan around. You know, it's like the question is how can you change it uh, and shift it? You've probably seen this where people have started discussing how do you change your gas pipeline infrastructure to provide other types of services like hydrogen, uh, potentially. You know, I, I don't know how realistic that is because of the timing of how fast that will go. But one thing that people yeah. don't realize, if you put in a gas pipeline nowadays, they're usually PVC. And they have, they're going to last 90 plus years. <laughs> so really like at this stage, we shouldn't be adding new like gas hookups or expanding the gas system. If this is really the case, you know, that you're going to be trying to essentially uh, reduce your dependency on, on natural gas. Yeah. So it's, it's a very, the infrastructure for it is very long lasting, but it also can be used for a lot of other things. Well, that's true. I mean, we've talked about it on the show that you could put renewable natural gas in there. You could put mm -hmm. hydrogen there. You can mix them and you can separate mm -hmm. them later. I mean, there's lots of options. So, um, I mean, just banning, you know, equipment that uses natural gas, maybe not is, is not the best way to go. You know, from a policy standpoint, I'm a big fan of telling folks what the goals are, not telling right. them how to go about it. Right. No, so right. if I'm sitting here, if I'm a policymaker, I'll be focused very carefully on the on saying, OK, well, we want to re reduce our dependency on uh, on CO2 overall or, or emissions. We want to reduce emissions very targetedly and make that the goal. Let people and right. you can set pretty strict goals and benchmarks, but let folks evolve in terms of figuring out how they want to deal with that. Right. So if you really want that gas stove. You can do it, but you got to sacrifice something else. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, kind of, it kind of makes you in the pro uh, carbon tax kind of space too, because then you just let the market figure it out, right? Well, I, I do think like you should give people choices. You know, you can kind of engineer or structure the choice architecture. 
so that you know that some choices are going to make more sense because the big issue with gas or any type of fossil fuel is that it doesn't have the full cost of it internalized right correct so you know, what you're basically doing with you know obviously m- most folks agree that uh who deal with this in a serious way agree that if you could put a carbon tax that would be the most efficient way to do it uh, yeah. But the reality is, we know that's not going to happen in the near term. You know? <laughs> well, so, so, but, but, the, but putting in mandates is actually a really effective way to get things done. Because over and over, you know, you put in the mandate and people will say, hey, no, that's impossible. We can do it. And then 10 years down the line, they met the mandate. You know, so, so but I kind of think like the mandate has to have some amount of choice for people so they can make those trade-offs and figure out what's the right way to do it. Yeah. Agreed. Well, Josh, this has been fantastic. Obviously, I think we could geek out forever on this stuff. <laughs> and we and it sounds like we've solved the whole grid uh, climate change issue altogether in this in this hour. So that's good for for two months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then everything will change, right? Um. So where can people go to find you? Um. Do you have a website? Uh, I have a website. It's called demandsideanalytics.com. Okay. Um. We run a regular blog on there too, and folks can just reach out to me and find me via LinkedIn. If you type in my name, Josh Bode, B-O-D-E, and uh, my firm name, then you'll, you'll find me. You know, I'm happy to cool. chat with anybody or give folks advice. Really cool. Thanks for coming on, Josh. We'll have to have you back sometime soon. Hey, next um, time we have to do over, uh, some whiskey or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't have a beer or anything. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks All for right. coming on. Thanks for being on the Pirates of Clean Tech, and yeah, we'll see you next week. All right, later. Yar, yar, yar. <laughs>